Good afternoon, everybody. This is Debbie Q with The Right Shoe. The Right Shoe is a podcast about all things strange and unusual, especially in reference to a death or a missing person in case they don't know what happened. One of these cases, well, I have three cases again. I've been, the last couple times I've been doing these, uh, The Right Shoe, I've had a f- three cases instead of one only because... It's just been crazy lately, and I feel that three cases, the um, surface is better than a deep dive right now. It's something I can handle, and it's all good. This way, you hear stuff that you might never heard before. You can deep dive yourself. I have been getting mostly all of these from Unsolved Mysteries, except the one I got from Cold Case with Bill Curtis. Tonight, the three cases. One is about Gord and Jackie McAllister from Canada. The next is a case about a guy named Tom Roach, which is so whack. It has always been... Sorry, I want to make sure you can hear me because sometimes my microphone's not on and we ain't having any of that. This case... The Tom Roach case is so freaking bizarre. And the third case is about Risa Trexler and her sister Jody. And I just wanted, I it's not a huge case, you know, deep dive wise or whatever. It's it's kind of just you'll know, I'll tell you, but it's it really stuck with me for several reasons. So let's get into it. Again, the right shoe. I am I used to do the whole kit and caboodle. I had a website. I had everything, except I just couldn't keep up with any of it. One day, when I semi-retire, I will be able to throw myself into this again, and I'll do all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, I want to get into YouTube. I have YouTube comments I never even got to, which really breaks my heart, because I don't even post my stuff to YouTube anymore, but I've kept the episodes that I did post up and it it sucks because I go and then I see all these nice comments and I'm like I feel terrible because I I can't even get there you know but if you're listening and you do and you watch YouTube and post it I I deeply appreciate that you've watched the YouTube channel I I just there's I would really like to do like there's this Annie Elise who I'm obsessed with right now she does tend to life I think she's excellent and she, I would love to do a YouTube channel like her, like really get into it, have times where you could comment, all that stuff. But I really, if I do something, it's got to be 100%. I, that's how I want to do it. You know, full blown. I think it would be cool because I'm from the 80s. I have a lot to say. I have opinions hardcore that rarely get changed <laughs> unless you show me a different way. You know, I, I just like to introduce people to stuff that they've never seen before. Or, you know, since I'm from the 80s, I would love to have two channels, like one true crime, one cool 80s shit. Because there's a lot of stuff from the 80s that I feel got lost in today's world that you could still have so much fun with. You know, like back then, ah oh man, I, I am so glad I grew up in the 80s because... It was a magical time. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have the internet. And and there's stuff about the internet that I love. I don't think cell phones and the internet is as evil as people make it out to be. I, I happen to like my cell phone. I agree that there was this magic back then because you could do whatever you wanted. Nobody was going to tape you. Nobody would ever even find you again. You know, but then there's pluses. Like, there's a lot of community things, and there's a lot of research that you can find now. I mean, back then, encyclopedias were literally totally irrelevant by the time they were published. Outdated. Hopefully one day when I, again don't work as much as I am now, I'll be able to do all that. Right now, we got bi-weekly, three shorts, four now. Let's get going. We got, I'm going to start with the Gordy or Gord McAllister, Gord and Jackie McAllister. At the time in June of 1991, when Gordon McAllister, who was 62 at the time, and his 50 nine-year-old wife, Jacqueline Jackie McAllister of Lindsay, Ontario, went on a camping trip. They were just on the first leg of their trip. They were all excited about it. 
they had gotten everything set up. They put pictures of their family in the camper. I mean, it was going to be this lovely little outing for the two retired individuals. That night, they had went into this Blind River rest stop. At first, it was just so beautiful, and Gordon had said it was really quiet and peaceful, and they decided to stay there. They had walked around. They were like, oh, this is a beautiful setup. Let's stay here for the night. So they went down. They, you know, they, they were in the bed when there was this pounding on their door. Now, Jackie would wake up first. She would head towards the trailer door, but the, the person banging was saying, I'm a police officer get out of bed, you're parked in a, the wrong area. But Gordon was like, right away, I knew something was wrong because I knew that this rest stop was okay to be parked at. So he couldn't, you know, but this all happened so quickly. She answers the door and he sticks a gun, a, a rifle into her face. I believe it was a 22 caliber rifle. And and he, he had two guns, which is kind of important. 20-gauge shotgun, 22 caliber rifle was used. So he sticks the gun in her face. She starts screaming. He says, shut the hell up. I want everything. I, this is a robbery, and then I'm going to kill you. Everything's all chaotic. Gordon's trying to wake up. He doesn't know what's going on. She's getting stuff and throwing it in this bag or whatever. He's taking the items in, her wedding ring, everything. Again, it happens so suddenly... She's begging, please don't shoot me, don't shoot me. He shoots her. He he. She falls to the ground. Gordon flies over his wife like he he. I guess he's seen like a little bit of an area where he could jump through the doorway, and he rolled right under the trailer. At this immediate time, Brian Major, twenty nine years old, happens to drive into the Blind River rest area. The gunman jumps out of the trailer shoots Brian Major and Gordon's under the trailer like praying the whole time because at this time he doesn't know if his wife is gravely injured or not so he wants to get help. Guy fortunately the gunman runs away but he does kill Brian Major. Now Gordon is racing he gets in he gets back in the trailer he's racing to the highway to get help. He didn't realize when he first got into the driver's seat and started driving that he himself was shot too because he was so freaked out about his wife. He sees a truck driver. The truck driver says, are you okay? Because Gordon's jumping around. He says, me and my wife have been shot. Can you get help? The truck driver says, my CB is broke. The radio's broke. I'll go to the next rest stop and get help. I'll call, which help does come, but it was too late. By the time they got back to the rest stop, Brian Major's dead. The guy that had pulled up at the wrong time and Jackie is dead. Now, Gordon is beside himself, just a wreck. He can't believe what's going on. They were married for 39 years. Can you imagine being married to someone for 39 years and this happens? Now, I have to say, when I was reading up on it, I I go on all Reddit posts now because Reddit, you can get a lot of not only information, but you can get a lot of strange or sometimes very good suggestions of who it might be or what might have happened. But this particular time, uh, they were way off. They kept suggesting that Gordon might have shot his wife or had a hired hit man. Oh, why was she shot and he wasn't? Well, first of all, they were both shot. She happened to die from it. But this isn't like, you know, this poor guy was a wreck. I feel so bad for this guy, Gordon. And there was never a doubt in my mind that he was not, he he had nothing to do. I, I can say that. I don't even know him, and I can say that wholeheartedly. This guy never had anything to do with his wife's murder. He didn't even get remarried the rest of his life, and he died. He would die in 2010, never having known who shot his wife. And there is a hint that I'll get to in a minute of who it might have been, but this is really a, a still an unsolved killing. This guy got away with it. I mean, this guy, Gordy, looked, he was married to his wife. He was in love with her. That was all he knew, and that's all he had. And I think it's just awful what happened. This is Gordon to explain it. We would have been married 39 years in September of 91. I didn't care whether I lived or died. 
I honestly didn't care. I thought my life was over. You outlive that long with a person and then it's hard to carry on by yourself. Now, does that sound like a guy that was involved in it? I'm sorry, but there's no way in God's creation he had anything to do with it. But they did think, which I have to say, this Ronald Glenn West really did. He Gordon did a composite sketch. He took five hours. At the time, it was all the rage. It was not just somebody sitting there drawing the picture of the perpetrator. It was this 3D imaging, like you would say what you thought, and then this 3D image of the guy. And he said when it was finished, after five hours, he said that was the killer. So this guy, Ronald West, who did look like the composite with a blonde wig on, and not only that, but his wife, said at the time... This Ronald West, who had killed other people, he was a he was a former police officer. He did own a twenty two caliber rifle and a twenty gauge shotgun. His wife, ex wife, said that he owned a blue van and looked similar to the composite, but with a blonde wig. He got mur- he was pleaded guilty to these nineteen seventy murders and was sentenced to life in prison. So. I don't know. It never came up, but the all, the cops are pretty sure that he was the guy. I guess it just never came up in trial, and he never admitted to anything. So he was never on books as having done it. And who knows? It, it still might have not been him. Sadly, on February 14th, Valentine's Day, 2012, Gord, Gordon passed away at the age of 83 without ever having seen a resolution to Jackie's murder. That case was so heartbreaking to me and so brutal. I mean, you're out in the middle of nowhere. Now, I have to say, I am in a city like Philadelphia. Everyone knows I live in Philly that knows me. I lived in Philly my entire life. I have lived in other places briefly, but I've always come back to Philly. I do like Philadelphia. I wish it was like it used to be because now the shootings are just out of control. But I still feel safer, hands down, here, in the city, than I ever would out in those freaky, isolated areas. I am so freaked out by that. We went camping one time, and I was a wreck. I just don't like that feeling. I know it's probably safer, and that's such an isolated incident. But I don't know. I, you know, I feel like in the city, people are, even though there's a lot of killings, it's 99% of the time, yes, there are the stray bullets, but it's usually there's a reason, however stupid the reason might be, but there's a reason behind it. It's usually drugs or somebody with, you're with my woman. It seems like Gordon said, you know, this guy was killing just for the thrill of the kill. There was no reason behind it. That's what scares me about those isolated areas. It's just, I don't know. There's nobody around. I prefer the gun-toting lunatics of the city than the ones out in the country. Because I don't understand the ones in the country. I can understand, you know, the city and the thinking. That's a short one, but I did want to say that because it always broke my heart. I remember that case from a long time ago. It's sad that it was never, nothing ever came of it. You know, it's still listed as unsolved. Somebody suggested that it was, you know, that I I think there was more than a suggestion. I think that uh, Ronald Glenn West was a person of interest, but they just never... There, it just never came to fruition that he was connected with the Blind River killings. So the next case is so bizarre, so weird, makes absolutely no sense to me. As I heard it the first time, this was a while ago when I heard it, as they're telling it, I'm like, oh my God, it's this, it's that, it's this, it's that. Like this case will drive you nuts. And even as I got to the end of the case, and I went on to Reddit and other posts. It's unbelievable, the questions. So let's start. This is a case of a guy named Tom Roach, R-O-C-H-E. Tom Roach was born 
November 17, 1954. He was he was a big guy. He was 6'2", 210 pounds. He had a lot of tattoos, a Viking and a wizard. He was a machine shop manager. He loved riding motorcycles. Big Harley Davidson Davidson enthusiast. And he was, I think he was brought up in Massachusetts, but he moved to Long Island after serving in the Navy. Uh, Rhode Island, Rhode Island. He met this woman, Barbara, I think it's Barbara, Barbara Rondeau, Rondeau, Barbara Rondeau. Now they moved, they met in 1976 and they were together for a long time. 1988, they decided to move to Burbank, California. They belonged to a club that often drove on weekend trips across California. They were very well liked and he, he, they literally moved to California because not only because California is beautiful, but it his he had arthritis in his knee, so to escape the cold weather. Sixteen years they were together. They were cycling. They there was a lot of passion. He was her lover, her teacher, her guide. That's how she described him. He was her whole life. Their their fellow club members were lawyers, plumbers, and accountants, and they held down everyday steady jobs. She was worked at a blueprint company and he was an expert in metal plating. He accepted a well-paid management position with a company that plated aircraft parts. So he quit his previous job as a supervisor in a machine shop and was scheduled to start work Monday, September 16th, 1991. Three days prior on September 13th, he drove Barbara to work they made plans to meet for lunch. And and even in the little segment, she says, you won't be late, will you? And he says, oh, no, no. I, you know, because apparently she didn't like when he was late. Blah, blah, blah. Lunchtime came around. He never showed up. She thought maybe he got stuck at his new place of employment. But he never called. And that was very unusual for him. He said, it was very unusual. He would not leave her just hanging around. So 5.30, she gets home at their place on Rogers Street in California, and the front door is unlocked, which she thought was weird. There's no sign of them, but right away she gets a very creepy feeling. The newspaper was left unopened, and he was a big sports guy. Very unusual for him to, to leave that unopened. A motorcycle battery that he was planning to install that morning was still on the counter. The answer machine had been turned off, suggesting that he had planned to be home and he would have been answering the phone. There was nothing for her to do. She couldn't sleep that night. She was a wreck. She's wondering why he didn't call. Very unusual. And they were together a long time. Now, of course, the detectives, they don't want to hear, you know, this This is an adult male and somebody like him, they're going to say, oh, you know, whatever. It's not going to be huge on their list to be looking for him. He wasn't a drug user and he had no criminal record. His Harley Davidson was left behind, which just, that's just bizarre. They answered, they started questioning the people in the neighborhood. And they said, like, is there a lot of people that hang out here? And the, the one neighbor's like, it's only just him and Barb ever. So it is looking a little strange. He was declared officially as a missing person. This case gets, I'm telling you, this case gets really weird quick. So five days pass and Barbara's father flies out from Rhode Island to be with her. I mean, she had to be a wreck. You know your significant other and you'll know, you know, I, I knew this one guy who kind of looked like this guy, Tom. His name was Brian. He since passed away. He was such a good guy. He was the kind of guy, like, if this would have been Brian and he took off, I would have been like, oh, he'll be back. And he is the kind of guy that just leave. And, like, if he was missing Brian, if he had ever left and I didn't know where he was, I would know. I, I You know, I'd be like, listen, it is his way. He'll be back eventually. But so you know your significant other. Like Barbara knew that although he was a biker and all this, like he was a little more of a person that would tell you where he was going, wouldn't just disappear. So if I really believe in someone and they're telling me that this guy wouldn't just disappear, 
I would believe it. I, I just don't understand why when people insist that they're that way, why sometimes cops, I don't know. I, I really don't understand that. I, I don't know if it's, it's a genuine laziness on their part or if it's because they've seen too much of it. I really don't know the answer to that. But they do classify him as missing. Now, in the meantime, this is what's freaky. Barbara gets a letter in the mail with not only Tom's driver's license, a credit card, and the earring he had been wearing the day he disappeared with a bizarre confession inside. I Once I found the entire letter, and I really wanted to find that the entire letter because it is freaky. Okay, here it is. God, I finally found it. This is what the letter said when she opened it. I am suffering to the family of Tom Roach. I am suffering a great deal of guilt right now about, why, about what I have done. I feel it is necessary to write about it for my sake and yours. You don't know me and hopefully you never will, but I am the one who killed Tom Roach. I cannot and will not go to jail. I could never handle it. I almost lost my mind. Never again. I loved being in Vietnam. In fact, those were the happiest days of my life. I felt such a rush whenever I had a confirmed kill that it was hard to switch it off when I came back to the States. For 18 long years, I have held this in check despite the nightmare, the nightmares and fantasies about killing. This Jeffrey, he meant Dom or he spelled it wrong. He spelled it Bahamer. This Jeffrey Bahamer thing really got to me, and I wonder if I could still do it. This was when Jeffrey Dahmer had just got arrested. So the killings, this guy's saying that the killings brought up the killings again in his head. I figured L.A. would be the, the best place for what I had in mind. I did not want just a random thing because you could get caught that way, so I set up a plan. I met Tom in a strip joint in the valley and got to talking. He fell for it, and we arranged to meet on Friday the 13th. I must assure you that it was neat and quick. I do not think he suffered at all. I am very sorry for what I have done, and I know in time that guilt will leave me. So will your pain. This, uh, uh, you know, what I just never noticed before, it says in the letter, it says this Jeffrey Dahmer thing, the Baham or whatever, really got me into it, and I wondered if I could still do it. I figured L.A. would be the best place. So this guy came to L.A., it's saying. How did he know Tom? The, all right, I'll get to the questions later. The letter made reference, okay, to, to what they believe was Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, Barbara's flipping out. The cops don't know what to believe. They believed for a long time that Tom just wrote this letter as a sick hoax to try and get them off like a red herring to get Barbara and everyone else off the trail. Like he just wanted to leave and not be looked for. But she knew that in her heart that that wasn't true. Now they really start getting into his, into this. They, they interview this guy and he says this, uh, the employee at a motorcycle parts store said he, this can't be right because I saw Tom on September 14th, the day after he went missing, and he was acting strange, and we usually joke around, but he was very withdrawn. So the investigators think that that was a mistaken day, and it had to be because four months after Tom had vanished on January 11th, 1992, police in Placer County, California, which is 500 miles north of Burbank were called to investigate a report of bone fragments discovered on a hillside. There was also numerous personal effects, including a duffel bag, a flashlight, a hunting knife, an empty prescription bottle of medicine, two pairs of prescription eyeglasses, a boot, and several shoes. Shirts. The weathered bones were later tested and positively identified as belonging to Tom Roach. It was determined they had been killed by a single gunshot. Now, before, you know, backtracking to when they just found the personal effects, they didn't know if this was Tom Roach or not. Barbara still held on to the hope that it wasn't him. It has been a nightmare. It has been hell. 
I still live for Tom. He's my life. So, Barbara was never the same. And before I get into this letter, and, and then they find the bones, and they... You know, she's still hoping that it's not him, even though she knew that all the personal effects were his. And she knew deep inside, but they they do come out, the DNA, it's Tom. She died in 2010 at the age of 49, which is incredibly young. She died of a broken heart. But the thing is, this letter raised so many questions. So he dies of a gunshot. Now, what the heck happened? This is when my, my head almost exploded. I mean, they they tested it. It was it was DNA. It was Tom Roach. They, they, he died by a single gunshot, probably when he turned. I mean, I'm assuming maybe he turned and the guy shot him. If this was this really this Vietnam crazed vet. So I go back. Now, that guy at the the motorcycle shop that said Tom was acting strange and wasn't talking. Because here's the weird thing. He said he was going to be there for lunch, right? And he had told Barbara that he wouldn't be late. But he had went home and everything was like he wasn't going anywhere. I, when I was going through and reading all these Reddit posts, these are some of the letters and theories that people were saying. The one says, my theory is that whoever wrote the note was a driver of the truck. Oh, because when one of the witnesses in the neighborhood said that she saw Tom talking to this white guy. They were standing in front of a truck, not fighting, not arguing. You know, they're theorizing that if the letter was true, then that was his killer, you know, because he left with him. So did the guy just come up to his house and say, let's go? Because this is what confuses me, and it confuses this person who's writing this post. My theory is that whoever wrote the note was the driver of the truck that the witness saw, the, who most likely lured Tom for some kind of fishing camping trip claiming he was selling him something that would require a trip outside the limit. What confuses me, and this is what confuses me, why would he take the bag he had packed at the initial meeting with the truck driver for the trip if he knew he was going to be back that day for lunch? I could understand being lured out for a small preliminary trip, but it wouldn't make sense as to why he had his bag. It just, uh, it doesn't make that, to me, it just doesn't make sense. Like, why did he bring two prescription glasses? This, okay, this, this is, these are posters to this Reddit post that I read about all of this, because I'm just as baffled by the letter. It does bring up more questions than answers. That doesn't really sound like a random killer and how they would choose a victim. He doesn't, and and Tom did not come across as somebody easily subdued. Someone could, of course, have given him a beer spiked with sedatives. A heavily tattooed biker who likes beers, titty bars, and the edge of society. Did he rub some on the wrong way? The letter could be real, but it sounds a little bit cliche to me, like somebody, something someone would write to impersonate a killer, not like someone genuine. It feels more like a red herring, although I don't, God, you know, and things are cliche about Vietnam, but you know why? Because cliches become cliches because they're actually from some form of truth. Like my dad was in Vietnam and he was with this guy, Joe, who killed himself like 20 years later because he could never get out of that Vietnam. That's very cliche, but it really happened. So maybe it was some guy that, you know, was fine for 18 years and then seen Jeffrey Dahmer get arrested and was like, oh, I need to kill. I mean, I don't know. It does sound a little cliche, but uh, maybe there's some truth behind it. Okay, so somebody says here, there is no mystery here. This is actually a letter detailing what happened. Probably the man in the truck, the white truck, is responsible. What was likely in the bed of that truck? A rifle. Who? Do, why do I think that? Because it would be amazingly easy to lure someone into the woods to sight and fire a rifle before purchasing it. It would also require glasses. <gasps> 
Yes, because he had, Tom had two pairs of prescription glasses when he left. That does make sense. And he was at the bank that morning and he made two deposits that morning. And this guy says, why deposit money in the bank one hour before meeting a man selling a rifle so the check doesn't bounce after you negotiate a price? Why don't you tell the wife where you're going? Because you'll be home before lunch and you don't need that nag to know what you do with your goddamn money. <laughs> it's very true. Roche would have been driven to somewhere 20 to 45 minutes away where a rifle could be fired. As soon as they were isolated, he's shot in the back of the head. Then his body is driven. Yes. Okay. I will read this guy's post a little more clearly. There is no mystery here. This is actually a letter detailing what happened. Probably the man in the white truck is responsible. Why do I think that? Because it would be amazingly easy to lure someone into the woods to sight and fire a rifle before purchasing it. It would also require glasses, and Tom needed glasses. I don't know what the knife was for. There must have been a knife found in the personal effects. Self-defense, because you're going in the woods with a man you just met at a strip club who said he had a rifle for sale. What deposit mo Why deposit money in the bank, you know, so they can negotiate a price, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, why don't you tell your wife? Because you'll be home before lunch. That's why he said he'd be home before lunch. Because he wasn't going 500 miles with the guy. He was only going 20 minutes or so. But the guy, after he shot him in the back of the head, drove him 500 miles north. Likely the killer knew the area the body was dumped before being an outdoorsman. Knew it was a good dump spot. Wait, what's a Bamer? A Bamer must reference something. I don't know. I wasn't in Vietnam, and I'm not. It, it just says in the letter, it doesn't say Jeffrey Dahmer. It says Jeffrey Bahamer. This guy wonders if it was a clue, like uh, maybe he served with a Bamer, and it was a play on words. I'll have to ask someone. Okay, this guy just says maybe he served with a Bamer, and it was a play on words. And then some people were like, oh, this it's just bogus. It doesn't make no sense. But I don't know. That does really make sense the way this guy said it. This is one of those cases. Look it up. And if you're if you're as fascinated by this letter as I am, try to look into that letter and see what the hell this guy meant. Was it real? Was I, why would he write the letter? You know? I do think that letter was genuine in some fashion. It's just crazy. I mean, and then this poor Barbara, she she died at age 49 because that, that was her life. That, that was a sad case. And I remember that case when I was a kid. I don't want to spend too much time on it. Tom Roach and Barbara Rondeau, it'll come right up. It's a big one, and it has a lot of arguments about it. I'm myself so curious what the hell that letter was about. But he was shot, and he was 500 miles north. They found his body and the personal effects, and something happened that day. But that makes the most sense to me, what that guy said. Although, I don't know what a B-E-H-M-E-R is. If anyone knows, please write to my Instagram feed, the Right Shoe Podcast underscore underscore. And I will I will love you forever. So, okay. Next case is going to be about Jody and Risa Trexler. This is the one I saw on Cold Case, and it was a true eye opener. I just can't believe this happened to this poor girl. You know, it was literally like they took two lives because the one sister's killed but yet they really mess up the other sister's life for a long long time okay jody and risa trexler were sisters born December. um no no i'm sorry born october 11 1968 risa trexler her sister was born in 1970 now 1970 71 they were 13 and 15 when this happened this is why this reminds me of me and my sister. That's why it hit me so hard. Because me and my sister, it was just us two. We didn't share the same bedroom the way Risa and 
Jody did, but we were best of friends. We were so close that as young teenagers, the doctor told my mom, oh, you have to separate those two. They're just too close, blah, 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 which was ridiculous. We were just always very close. I think that doesn't even make sense to me that he ever said that, but they were very close, Jody and Risa, and they had cable. Now, I remember when cable first came out. Now, my friends had it outside the city from like 1979, 1980. They had HBO and Prism. This is just a side note because it always pissed me off. But in the Northeast, our little section, Morrell Park, we didn't get cable until 1986. We were the very last people in the city to get cable. It was crazy. And all these people had MTV except for us. And we would go to any house we could find MTV at. Well, that's what they were doing. It was Jody, our sister Risa, and two of their friends, Paul and Jim, were at the Trexler house watching MTV. They were having a blast. And I guess around 3 o'clock, Risa was like, I'm going to watch the soaps. So Jim and Paul were like, eh, we're out of here. I was never a big soap fan when I was younger either. They were huge with my babysitters, though. Now, their grandparents lived right across the way. Jody says that day goes on like Jim and Paul leave and she's fritting about the house. And she's wondering where her sister is. She said it was kind of weird that she she just didn't see her for a little bit. And she took a nap, woke up. She was looking out the window when she saw her grandfather, who I guess her grandmother and grandfather pulled up to their house, which was like I said, she looked out the window and she could see her grandparents' house. They come, The grandfather comes running out of the house, just freaking out. Here, her sister was found raped and murdered, a blanket partially covering her, eyes wide open. And I mean, you know, she said it. It was just unbelievable. And for a grandfather to have to find, oh my God. So, you know, it was a nightmare. Like the mom comes and she, when she pulled up the mom, her name was Vicky. She said, at first I thought something happened to my mom because the grandfather was standing on the porch, like freaking out. But when she walked in, she saw her daughter eyes open, dead, dead, nude, blood. Uh, this the knife was still in the like she had been stabbed many times but the knife was still i believe it was in her shoulder or her neck i think it was her neck so they call the cops of course the cops they're just gonna the first thing they're gonna think of is the boys jim or paul paul said he didn't even know what happened the cops just grab him and that's how he found out risa had died and he said it was horrible, like you're a young kid. And, and I have to admit, like when you're young and this happens, you know, I did my second podcast is about Teresa, um, Tina Severance. And that was my sister's best friend's twin was murdered when she was 13, raped and murdered. I was 16. My mom came in my bedroom and said, do you know where Tina is? Because the, the morning she was missing, September 7, 1986, first day of school and I was a junior and I was like how the heck would I know where Tina is like I don't know what they do that's my sister's friends but I remember it's this day and even when we found out she had been murdered at that young age it's different than when you like today I still get so overwhelmed by the thought of this 13 year old girl you know, he, he posed as a cop, he, he got her out of the car, and he killed her, and I, I just can't get over that. As a young kid, you just don't, yeah, the, the brevity of life has not yet hit you. And and all the time that she missed, and now, uh, you know, flash forward to all these years later, almost 40 years, it just, it's unbelievable to me. Just you're not the same when you're young. And that's what Jody was trying to get across in this cold case. She said, we're at the funeral. And yes, my sister's in there dead. But I'm young. And, and they just thought it was so weird that I wasn't boohooing and carrying on. And so there's a lot of townspeople that talk. And this is why I hate these 
like even with the Ohio case, or the Idaho case, I hate that people are saying whether, and it might be true, we don't know yet, but they, they're this poor girl, Dylan, who didn't call the cops right hours. Yes, that's very strange, but who knows? Let's get the truth out first before we say that she was in on it with Brian Koberger. You know, people just want to stab people in the heart before they know what's going on. And that's what happened with this girl, Jody. They, because she didn't boohoo and carry on at the funeral. And for whatever reason, also with the grandfather, they, they said, oh, the girl was raped. The grandfather was molesting them for years. And Jody said, my grandfather never touched us. But, you know, all those rumors really killed that grandfather. He he just never got past it, never got over it. And that really sucks. You know, that really pisses me off. People need to keep their mouths shut. Like to say that this grandfather molested them without ever knowing that that's a fact, that just drives me nuts. That's so mind-bogglingly wrong on so many levels. Unless I know something to be true, and even then, I, I keep, I'm a harbor of many secrets. I, I would never say anything anyway. But people who do that and don't even know the truth, that's so disgusting. But that's what they did to this family. And because they kept saying, well, they were he was molesting them. And that's what happened to this girl. And then they were saying, well, Jody didn't act right. So it must have been the sister. And they kept saying it and saying it and saying it so much that the cops started honing in on Jody. You must have done it with somebody else. Even if you didn't do it, you must have been with somebody else. They had eliminated, for whatever reason, Jim and Paul, because that day it was Jim, Paul, Risa, and Jody watching TV. They had been the last people to see Risa alive. So they cleared Jim and Paul although they never publicly said so. So there was kind of always suspicions about them as well. But they really honed in on Jody because they couldn't eliminate her because she had been sleeping that day in her house. So for years and years and years, even the mother said, they start messing with your mind. She said, the mother, Vicky, said, I knew it wasn't my daughter, Jody inside. I knew that, she said, but the cops had my head so messed up. And Reese's BFF was apparently a mother humper because as time goes on, this case became cold. They couldn't or wouldn't really, really investigate it. So they don't, the cops just never found a, a suspect outside of Jody to pick on. And she was always really the only suspect they had. And Jody was like, and I didn't do it. So the mother, even she said she felt that Jody didn't do it, but the cops had her head so messed up. And this guy, Paul, he said, you know, I just never knew what to think. So they didn't talk for years and years. Now, this guy, Jim, had become so failed up that, that this had happened to his friend, Risa, that he... He began, he drank, he did drugs, and they play an answer machine message of him telling Paul, like, this is like the fifth rehab I'm going into, and he could just never get clean. And he ultimately died when he was like about 48 through drug and alcohol abuse. And Paul says, I really believe it was over Risa. He just never got over her death. So time's a ticking away. At their Facebook comes along. This is how many years has gone by. Jody is on there and she sees this Facebook homage to her sister. And she tried to become a part of it. They kicked her off and it was all about Jody, you know, and she was really starting to get pissed off. So in the meantime, she sees Dr. Phil has this thing because she, you know, she's so tired of this. She writes Dr. Phil a letter and she says, look, I, my sister was murdered in 1984. They always said it was me. It's not me. I want you to give me a lie detector. And Dr. Phil, to his credit, gave her a lie detector test. And the results are that if you were telling the truth, you did not. 
So I have to say it is almost a tearjerker of a moment because you see so many emotions run through her face when Dr. Phil announces you've been telling the truth. Relief, gratefulness that Dr. Phil is being honest and they gave her a true... I I know lie detector tests. I, I know they're... You know, I there's a reason they're not submitted in court because it depends on they're not bad, but you it depends on who's reading them. It, there's a lot of variables, and this worked to her benefit no matter what, even if it's for that good riddance because it got everything stirred up again about this case, and it had been dead for a long time. This guy Travis Schulenberger came forward a detective, and he said he had always heard of this case, he had always known about this case, and now this whole Dr. Phil thing got him on board with wanting to redo the DNA. He said the investigators at that time did one thing, they preserved the semen, and he got a hold of it. They painstakingly, you know, they tested the DNA, got it together, got a profile. At first, nothing came about of it because it wasn't matching anything. So they did that familial DNA typing and they finally got a match. They called Jody and she said, I finally knew who killed my sister, but there was many mixed emotions about it because there's no one they ever heard of. It was just some random guy. You know, the, the detectives tell her to come. They finally get the killer of Risa Trexler was Curtis Edward Blair. They even exhumed his body and got his DNA to make sure that the whole profile they had done in the match and everything was correct. The black guy, he had been working at the Frito-Lay factory about two blocks from the house. A case summary says investigators seized a knife belonging to C. Blair that was submitted to the state crime lab for analysis. No blood was detected. But DNA uh, from the semen and everything, they did also have, which they never investigated, there was, somebody had said they seen a black guy running in the area of the crime scene at the time of the, at the, time of the homicide. Nobody ever investigated that lead. It was just too random and too bizarre. And I guess back then, how would they even prove it was him? You know, there was really nothing to go by. And now DNA, it's really changed the face of law enforcement big time um, in this regard. Another shitty thing about it is he died in 2004. So they, it was 14 years too late. She had been found dead June 15, 1984, lying in a bedroom on her, in a grandparent's home. And she had been stabbed several times in the upper chest and neck. It also says, 1984 detectives found the hair they determined to be from an African-American on her body at the crime scene. Trexler's grandfather, Walt Monroe, had been to the grocery store and, his wife to, and took his wife to the hairdresser at the time of the murder. There had been no forced entry and nothing was taken. Her, She was still wearing a bracelet, watch, and ring. Several people, including family members, were rumored to be suspects through the years, but no arrest was ever made. Nine witnesses reported seeing a black male in the area, with five of them saying they saw a black man running. But nothing was ever done until this 2018 Dr. Phil show brought interest for the Schulenberger, and he said... The sum of the evidence was never tested because of limited technology in 84. But that was him. He did have a criminal history of assault with a deadly weapon, and he did serve jail time. There was nothing else, you know. I don't think he ever had murder in his uh, jail, you know, outside of that. Wow. And we would like to say Jody has been completely exonerated and she was really happy, you know, to have this down. And and Paul, of course, came forward and they made up. And when that kind of thing happens, you're just so mind blown. But that kind of sucks. That's how stuff starts with rumors. 
So I always say, don't, unless you know for sure, I, I, you know, keep, keep it closed until you know. Otherwise, these rumors start, and it's so vicious. Not only that, but look how much it swayed. I, it really did ruin everything because they never even investigated the, the suspect running, the black guy running across the street or whatever. But that's kind of weird. Like, what happened? He just... You know, when you think back, like he was two blocks from the house in a Frito Lay. What did he, he was just walk down the street and saw her? I, I that's the mechanics of it. It's a little disturbing. That's really. I guess the knife. That's how he got her into the house. Very very strange. That was the three cases. As always, I will I will do more deep dives. But right now, I've just been kind of touching on the cases because it's. I, I don't know. I, I I'm finding like several cases I want to do at once and and they're really you can't even really deep dive into these except the Tom Roach letter that you can deep dive into but otherwise it's especially the first one there's nothing I mean well yeah it's uh, strange strange cases those were the cases hope you enjoyed them I will be back soon and happy happy summer it's so beautiful i love the warm weather loving 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 it time to make dinner it's hot my dog's panning this is debbie q with the right shoe have a great night guys